Hello, and welcome to the FCD Rising Up podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Miernick, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Nicholas Esposito and talking about Andrew Yang. So let's get into it. So before we get started, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about where you go to school, what you're studying, what you're involved in, and how you became interested in politics? Right. Okay. So my name is Nicholas Esposito. I am the president of the Flagler College Democrats at Flagler College in St. Augustine. My majors are political science with Myers in economics and law. Um, I've always had an interest in politics. It mainly spawned out of history, which I studied a lot when I was a younger kid. And from that point forward, I just got more and more interested in politics, mainly European, African, and American. Um, I've been researching more of Latin American politics recently, but details. So yeah, that's more or less it for me. So you're an active supporter of Andrew Yang for president. Um, Can you kind of tell us a little bit how you became interested in Andrew Yang and what initially drew you to his campaign? Right. Okay, so like a lot of college students probably listening to this right now, um, this will be the first time that I'll ever be able to vote in a presidential election. Not that it really matters, but in 2016, I backed Bernie Sanders in the primary and, you know, Hillary Clinton in the general, um, even though I wasn't very pleased with the outcome of the primary. And when 2020 rolled back around, I was curious to see what the Democratic Party would produce as in candidates. You know, there were certain candidates that seemed pretty obvious and like the ones who were going to run. You had a lot of senators and governors who kind of from the outset seemed to use their positions on committees and the such to kind of position themselves for it. People like Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gilbrand, Cory Booker. Um, but I was interested to see, you know, just exactly what the field would produce before just going with Bernie like I did in 2016, because the field was much smaller back then. And what initially introduced me to Andrew Yang's campaign, uh, it's very, very small. He's never held political office or anything like that, is the fact that I'm quite active online and... I tend to go to the different corners of the internet and I ended up seeing, you know, a couple of memes associated with his campaign. But the first thing that really interested me was his long form interviews where he would sit down for an hour or an hour and a half with uh, podcasters like Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, um, more recently H3H3 Productions. And he would just talk for about an hour, hour and a half about his, you know, about his ideas, and it was very detailed and very laid out. And above all, I'm kind of a policy guy. I'm not very easily swayed by personality or, like, the semantics of politics. I'm more interested in policy and that sort of thing. So that's what initially introduced me and got me interested in his campaign. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Um, So what do you think the majority of today's voters are looking for in a candidate? And why do you think voters will be attracted to Andrew Yang or have been attracted to Andrew Yang? I know that um, recently I went to the presidential debates down in Miami and there was a lot of Yang supporters down there. Right. So I'm interested in hearing your perspective. Yeah. 
Well, to comment on the Yang supporters, we, the Yang gang, as we, they like to call themselves, they're a very dedicated um, group of supporters and volunteers, um, very active online, but yeah, they'll come out in force for their candidate, but you don't really find casual Yang supporters. So if we're talking about a general election, but I think primarily, if you were to take note of the general political calculus in the nation right now, you would see very deep resentment towards establishment politics. And, you know, I hate to say something like status quo, because that's commonly overused. It's a commonly overused term on both sides of the aisle. But basically, the entrenched political system, the perception of corruption, people are very much in a populist anti-corruption mood right now. It's part of the reason why Trump was able to run, I will say falsely, falsely on his promises of drain the swamp, blah, blah, blah. He ran on anti-corruption in in Washington. Obviously, he didn't follow through on that. I don't think he ever had intention to. But it's something that resonated with voters. And it's something that resonates with voters on uh, the Democratic side as well. So it would lead one to believe that the vast majority of Americans, if we can bridge that partisan gap, have issues with Washington and the uh, entrenched political system there. So in that sense, the fact that Andrew Yang is a political neophyte and he doesn't commonly fall into the, let's say, tropes, common strategies of politicians, he's much more suited to law. He doesn't do attack lines, that sort of thing. He likes explaining himself. He'll, he's willing to go to basically, you could put him in any situation and he seems to be willing to talk to anyone. He's, he's not much of a politician, um, at least in the traditional sense, uh, in somewhat the same way that Bernie Sanders isn't your traditional politician, that he himself is a populist. So if you're going to ask, what do the American people want? It's someone that they feel is uncorrupted by the political system, by super PACs, Citizens United, all those problems. And that will actually attempt to and be successful in changing the broken way Washington works today. So I believe that's, I believe that's an appeal of Andrew Yang in the general elections. Aside from that, just his general demeanor, his depth of knowledge, his willingness to talk numbers and actual ideas as opposed to just rhetoric. But yeah, that's a general idea. Okay. Um, So when it comes to Andrew Yang, one of the biggest criticisms that I've seen that he's received is that he's not ready to be president. I mean, people are um, saying that too many of his ideas are poorly thought out or would be incredibly destructive if implemented, such as proposing that all laws passed by Congress must come with sunset provisions. It would need key performance indicators to measure their success. Um, How do you feel about this platform point? Um, such as this one and many of his other ones that have been controversial, um, and him even being compared to Donald Trump in the sense that he would just be elected as a businessman and he has no idea how government works. Right. Well, yeah, that is a complaint that is pretty consistently lodged against him by the left because we have a much more of an affinity for government service and 
I identify myself as on the social democratic spectrum. So I'm, I'm, I'm no libertarian. I don't, I, I don't think that the fact that you're a businessman will mean that you're better at running the country or anything like that. But if you were to look at the way Andrew Yang has structured his campaign, the way that Andrew Yang has carried out his, carried himself through his career in the private sector, you'll find one that is markedly different than Donald Trump's during his time in the private sector. While Donald Trump spent a lot of his private sector, time in the private sector declaring bankruptcies, um, trying to scam people out of money, trying to find ways to discriminate in housing choices and basically squeezing money out of local governments, state governments, and the federal government, Andrew Yang spent his time in the private sector attempting to address key economic issues. His nonprofit, his nonprofit organization, Venture for America, is based entirely on the idea of, so, like, you know, you know where all, you know where all the, you know, tech startups and, you know, financial gurus are based in, right? Yeah, Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley and New York City, um, if you're going to bring the financial sector into it. It's these two states on the coast that kind of, for lack of a better term, I mean, I'm not saying that they intentionally do it. It's just kind of an effect of this is where, this is where the programs are. This is where the infrastructure and the industry is. Um, so Yang's nonprofit, Venture for America, was very much, okay, let's bring some of these bright minds, some of these innovators, and take them out into the middle of the country. Take them to places like Detroit, Cincinnati, Cleveland that have been left behind by the deindustrialization, outsourcing, and a major point plank of Yang's campaign, automization, which is, you know, when robots come in and take your job. So, uh, wasn't getting it. So, yeah, his time in the private sector was nowhere near as predatory or, you know, kind of that 1980s Reaganite greed is good style of I'm just going to get mine and profit is the only thing that matters. So I understand that people are skeptical of someone who at face value might seem somewhat similar to Donald Trump in his background. You know, a political neophyte who decides to run for president because they see something wrong with the country and they think that they have the solutions and that Washington is corrupt. The problem is, of course, that Washington is corrupt and the message of corruption does tend to stick. So I'm not saying that I agree with Donald Trump in 99% of the time, but the fact that he did campaign on the fact that I am removed from the political establishment and I am removed from... Washington, D.C., it played with people, even if it was completely false. Um, Yang, on the other hand, rejects any sort of super PAC money. He does not take money from the military-industrial complex. He, along with Tulsi Gabbard, have been the only candidates to sign the pledge to end the forever war. He doesn't take money from the private sector or a lot of the tech giants that you would think that someone such as Silicon Valley, you know, kind of tech-based candidate would be prone to take. take. So 
most people's concerns I feel can be put to rest with the idea of, of he's he's running out of a genuine spirit of wanting to do something well. He's not corrupted by any super PAC or corporate money. All his money comes from small donors, similar to Bernie Sanders. Indeed, I do think the average donation to Yang's campaign is smaller than Bernie Sanders. Um, it's not slamming Sanders at all, but it's just making a point. So I believe a lot of fears get put to rest there. As far as people being worried about political neophytes and their incapacity to do politics well, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you have other young progressive voices who have just recently entered politics, and they had no political backgrounds, and right now they're some of the most dynamic figures in um, federal politics that we have today. So kind of moving on to his policy and platform points, uh, Andrew Yang is an entrepreneur and holds many hats I mean, looking through his policy and platform, it seems like he does take a lot of, I guess, the Silicon Valley type mindset and more technological advancement way of approaching problems if he was president. Um, Can you kind of expand on some of his platform or policy points that you, like, agree with or that really drawed you into his uh, campaign more? So aside from his general rhetoric concerning... Um, you know, his positions on automation and the economy of the future. One thing that really draws me to him is his flagship proposal of the universal basic income. Uh, It's labeled as the freedom dividend. And basically, it's the idea, it's been an idea that's kind of held constant through the entire, through American history. Thomas Paine, the writer of of Common Sense, one of the founding fathers, Martin Luther King um, was an advocate of it. Richard Nixon, early in his term, even suggested the idea, but that didn't go anywhere. Um, I understand that Richard Nixon may not be someone you want to lump in when you're talking about good political figures, but it's just illustrating the, the idea that this idea has been suggested and that it's not anything very much new, even though some may consider it as radical. And the idea behind universal basic income is that if you are an American citizen and you are over the age of 18, you will get $1,000 a month, no questions asked, from the U.S. federal government. Um, there's several components to this. It's usually his most controversial uh, policy because most people think of that and it's like dude you have several million people in this country how are you going to give everyone twelve thousand dollars a year and you know actually pay for that but there are very specific guide there are very specific tax setups called the VAT tax and economic numbers that go into it actually paying for itself in a lot of ways so do you know how much Amazon paid last year in taxes, federal taxes? Zero. He, uh, Jeff Bezos, well, I don't know if Jeff Bezos paid, you know, some sort of income tax. I would imagine it would be hard for the world's richest man to avoid paying any tax. But the company Amazon paid zero in federal, in federal taxes. The reason why is that 
our current tax structure is based primarily off of it's very complex, very Byzantine. And it enables large corporations that can hire armies of accountants and lawyers to move money overseas into tax havens like Ireland or the Cayman Islands and or site profits in other places or basically do any of any of a variety of financial accounting tricks to avoid paying taxes to make it look like they didn't turn any sort of a profit when obviously that's a massive lie. So what you do instead is you institute a VAT tax, which I've always liked to describe when I'm explaining this as kind of an anti-sales tax, where a sales tax is usually passed on to the consumer. The VAT tax is passed on to the uh, VAT tax is an acronym for value-added tax, by the way. Uh, I probably should have opened up with that rather than automatically going in and saying VAT. The VAT tax is the, an anti-sales tax in that it goes in there and it applies to corporations. It applies to companies like Google and Amazon and Netflix, which are probably all going to be the same company in a couple of years anyway because we don't have monopoly laws in this country. Details. Um but it applies to the companies in the sense that if you want to sell in America, if you want to sell a product in America, then you have to, you have to pay a toll for wanting to access the American markets. So it doesn't matter that Amazon reports all its financial, all of its financial, you know, revenue in Ireland or the Cayman Islands, like they oftentimes do. If they want access to the American market, if they sell something in America, seeing that we are the largest economy in the world and we have the largest consumer base, you have to pay a VAT tax because it's a value added tax. It doesn't matter that you're officially registered in Ireland. It doesn't matter that you're officially registered in the Cayman Islands. If you want access to American consumers, which they need if they want to turn any sort of a profit, you have to pay the VAT tax. So this being the baseline payment for the freedom dividend, the UBI, the $1,000 a month, is only compounded by the economic reality of what a, what $1,000 a month in the hand of an average American will do for local businesses and local economies. So one of my favorite things that Andrew Yang has on his campaign website is that if you type in the zip code for wherever you live, it will give you an estimate of how much money will be put into your local economy. Like, at the debate Detroit, um, <laughs> at, the de the, at the debate in Detroit, sorry, he told people, you know, put this in. And Detroit has hundreds of $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year. That enables them to go out and spend that money. Because, you know, most people would spend it, right? Some people might try to save it and, you know, plan ahead, which is good for them. A lot of people need security money, but most people are going to spend it. Like, what would you do with $1,000 a month if you just had it? Yeah, I would pay for housing, 
bills, anything, pretty much. That's what my main point when I was researching Andrew Yang, that was the biggest platform point that I love of his, is that would help so many different people, especially people that I know, college students. Right, exactly. Um, it's just the idea that you're not constantly in crisis mode. Something that Andrew Yang always brings up is that you want to, you want to switch the American people away from the mindset of scarcity to one of abundance. You don't, like, one, one statistic that he always cites that I love is that the average IQ of a person will drop if you put them into a financially stressful scenario. If you take away their money, people become a lot more reactionary. People become a lot more scared, and they don't think th things through. So if you guarantee them an income of $1,000 a month, well, the, any sort of income, if you guarantee them an income, that takes the boot off of a lot of people's throats. That allows them to plan ahead. That allows them to be comfortable in the idea of, okay, you know, I can go out and I can feed my kids. I can go out and I can pay, I can pay for an apartment. You know, especially if you're a college student, if you live with a couple of your friends, a apartment, depending on where you live, of course, it's it's uh, go state by state and location by location. But if you go and live with a couple of friends or any random person, you know, a rent could only be like two fifty a month. So a thousand dollars a month, that's taken care of. You don't have to worry about that anymore. And the genius thing about it is that twelve thousand dollars a year is not enough to dissuade people to like just stop working. You know, most people can't live off of $12,000 a year. That's ridiculous. All it does is let people have a little bit of breathing room. And that's all they need. If you want them to care about the environment, if you want them to care about climate change, if you, wanna, if you want them to care about racial justice um, and big long-term ideas, you need to make sure they're not worried about can I put food on the table? You need to make sure that they're not worried about, I just won't have any spending money. Because, you know, if you talk to people in the middle class, yeah, they have food on the table. Yeah, they can pay for their house. But a lot of people just don't have a lot of spending money. And that's something stressful when you have to think about and, like, watch, watch your budget. Because it might be like, oh, your card got declined because you had to pay the electric bill. Tough shit. Um... So yeah, the idea behind a universal basic income is that it would put so much money into the economy. People would go out and spend that money, support small businesses, and actually help people you know, thrive and help local businesses thrive because everyone has money now, to some extent, that it in a lot of ways pays for itself. It would increase federal revenue because more people would be spending, and most of the American tax structure as it exists today is based off of these sorts of tra transactions. You know, the idea, and you can make an argument that that's not the way our tax system should be set up, but most American rev most federal revenue is pulled from the fact that a local economy is doing well, or a state economy is doing well, or a national economy is doing well. The more money that's put into it, the more money that gets siphoned away in taxes as a background fee.
So, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you have anything else you would like to share with the listeners before signing off? Yeah, I would encourage people to go out and check his campaign website, Yang2020. Go go onto Reddit or uh, go onto Reddit or uh, Yang's Facebook, and you'll be meted by you'll be met by some of the most outgoing, supportive, just kind of nice supporters. There's something particular about Andrew Yang supporters online, in that they are very they are very kind for you know online political advocates. If that makes sense, if you've ever been involved. With politics online, it's usually very abrasive, can be somewhat harsh. Yang supporters, at least in my experience, have been very willing to have discussions, point you to specific policy proposals, doesn't don't often lose their temper, which I find interesting and quite frankly refreshing. So check out his check out his page, see what you like. And aside from that, not much else. Thanks for having me on.